ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hey there, I'm Jonathan Tepperman, Foreign Policy's Editor-at-Large, and this is FP Playlist. Each week, my goal is to help you make sense of the crowded universe of podcasts out there by recommending one show from somewhere around the world that I think you're going to like. This week, I'm featuring a podcast called The Rothman Review, which is produced by the Financial Times. In each episode, Gideon Rothman, who is the FT's Chief Global Affairs Columnist, takes you with him as he travels the world to report and write his columns. The episodes are old-school, one-on-one conversations with the fascinating people he meets and interviews along the way. The shows range from explainers to deep dives into complex political and international issues. The episode we're highlighting this week was first aired back in April 2020, and it features a talk Gideon had with Francis Fukuyama, the famous scholar and one of the world's greatest experts on democracy. Before we get to the episode, though, I want to play a short conversation I had recently with Gideon about the series. Gideon Rockman, welcome to FP Playlist. It's great to have you here. Tell me, you know, I'm a big fan of the Rockman Review, but what's your concept for the show? Well, I think like all of these things, it evolves a bit. I mean, when we were all able to travel, I used to uh, mainly talk to people off the record, and I still do, actually, because uh, I'm a, first and foremost a columnist. But it occurred to me, well, maybe every now and then I'd just get somebody to talk into a microphone and um, use uh, that as the sort of basis for giving people a flavour of the kinds of conversations I was having in places like Moscow and Hong Kong or or indeed Washington, D.C. And, and that was... Um, uh, working quite well. Uh, now we've moved into lockdown, and I think you know it, it's a bit more pre-planned. Then it's 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 not so much me and my travels as picking a topic uh, or a particular person that I'd like to speak to, and trying to have a reasonably kind of, uh, if I can put it that way, intellectual conversation where we take a few steps back. Uh, you have a a longish discussion, maybe twenty minutes. Um, with uh, somebody interesting, but trying to take on some of the big issues, like how big is the uh, crisis of American democracy? How much is it related to uh, racial division within the country? And almost as if the two of us were kind of having dinner, but with less interrupting and, uh, you know, a bit more structured than that. That was something I was going to highlight because it's interesting how you do different things on the show. There are, as you say, some... Um, some very deep intellectual conversations. But then there are pieces that feel more like explainers. Um, And here I think of the Thailand episode and the Ethiopia episode, um, 
which explained Ethiopia's ethnic violence. And those play another very valuable um, role as well, which is to unpack a complex issue in a way that readers can understand. Um, do you have other models for the show as well beyond those two? Or templates that you I use mean, for different episodes? I, I think probably, you know, they're all they're variations around a the theme. I mean, to, to be honest, I started my career at the BBC, at the BBC World Service, um, in the mid-80s. And I still carry some of that with me. And we used to do a, a show called News Hour, it's still going out where, you know, stuff would, would be happening in the news and we'd have a Rolodex or, you know, of, of contacts and get hold of people and, and talk to them about it. And that's still sort of what I want to do. Uh, something explanatory, uh, fairly neutral in tone. So you approach the show like a, in some ways, like an old fashioned radio man? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean... Um, I assume you're not wearing a, a dinner jacket and standing up like. <laughs> no, BBC I don't. I don't get, unfortunately get to say this is London, um, but uh, but yeah, that's that's sort of um, the way I do it. I mean, I sort of learnt to broadcast insofar as I did learn from that, um, and I still feel reasonably comfortable in that in that format which may make it slightly old-fashioned i mean it's quite interesting actually well there is something you know charmingly old school about the podcast because <laughs> there's been over the past couple of years this shift to a lot of formal invention in the style and structure of podcasts um, and a move away from the talking head model um, but um, that's precisely what i love about this because the conversations go so deep and are so interesting well that's sweet of you to say that but i mean it's also it's quite interesting you know, we have this uh, kind of discussion with the production team about how personal should it be. And initially, I slightly kind of resisted that because, again, it's the whole sort of BBC background thing. You don't, you, you're not the story, you know, you, you're just... Uh, uh, whereas they're quite keen that you... Uh, because I think podcasts are more personality-driven, that, you know, insofar as I have a personality, I should bring it out. Uh, and I, I, you know, I would kind of compromised around that. And, and sometimes I think it can contribute. So that that's the way I, I do it is if it if it's sort of if the first person or my personal experiences are relevant or, or interesting, I'll do it. But I try to avoid it already being uh, too personalized. So the, as we've alluded to, the the episode that we're featuring today is a long conversation you had with Francis Fukuyama, the eminent scholar of, of um, international affairs, um, most recently uh, of democracy, um, most famous perhaps as you get into in the, in the, the beginning of the episode for um, his work in the late 90s on uh, the um, end of history, a, uh, uh, an, a title that uh, I think he came to rue because of the way that it was misinterpreted. Why did you decide to talk to Fukuyama in the first place? And I should say it was in the context, right, of the, what was then still a relatively new and burgeoning um, pandemic coming out of China. Well, I mean... Actually, I'm I'm a, I'm a Fukuyama fan. I've always thought uh, he was he's an interesting guy, and that that he he was misrepresented a little bit on the end, the end of history. I don't think you know it was as simplistic as people said. Um, and uh, I've I've come across him, um, you know, over the years, and had in my mind, well, I, I should try and get him on at some point. Um, and it struck me that. On this particular subject of the coronavirus, it it hit a couple of issues that he's been consistently interesting about. One is uh, 
does democracy work better than authoritarianism? And he has been sort of revising his views on, on that topic, making them a bit more nuanced over the years. And the other is he's written a lot about trust, um, and, and and that is the key to a healthy functioning political system. And clearly that was was and still is fundamental to the extent to which governments have been able to persuade their citizenry to do very difficult things. Right. So how do the um, the, the podcast conversations w- relate to and interact with your columns? Are these conversations that you're having or would be having any ways to inform what you're writing or not necessarily? You know, ideally, I try to make them sort of fit so that, um, you know, if I could make it work, I would do the record the podcast I generally record on a Monday and then the following week's column would be on the same subject but then sometimes I'll sort of have a guilty conscience almost that there's a topic that I couldn't quite sell to the FT op-ed as my main thing for the week because it's too niche for them Uh, you know they'll probably let me do it but but I, I know it won't get a particularly huge readership uh, you know, say Thailand or, or Algeria or whatever. But I think it's really interesting. And maybe the, the you know, I can do it in the podcast um, and, and, and therefore get um, the chance to cover things that there's a slight pressure not to do as, as the column because the column has to have a sort of pretty broad appeal to, to the FT readership. Gideon Rockman, Chief Foreign Affairs Columnist at the FT and the host of the Rockman Review. Thank you so much for talking to me and to FP Playlist. Thank you very much for having me on. And here's the episode, Francis Fukuyama on the Coronavirus and the Crisis of Trust, which was originally released in April 2020. Hello, and welcome to the Rockman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. And in this week's podcast, I'll be talking to Professor Francis Fukuyama of Stanford University about whether democracies or authoritarian governments are proving better at dealing with the coronavirus. Has China shown that it's better able to deal with a pandemic than the United States? And is America suffering from a crisis of trust in government? Back in 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. For those of us who'd grown up in the Cold War, it was immediately apparent that an era of world history had come to a close and something new was beginning. Just a few months earlier, Francis Fukuyama, then a diplomat, had published an academic essay which predicted the collapse of communism and argued that liberal democracy was poised to triumph and spread around the world. Fukuyama's essay was, of course, called The End of History, and its brilliant timing ensured that Fukuyama looked extraordinarily prescient. He became a global intellectual celebrity, and he's since written books on a wide variety of subjects, including trust, political order, and most recently, identity politics. The price of his early fame, however, has been that ever since, Professor Fukuyama's had to put up with people saying, aha, but history didn't end, did it? That argument's always seemed to me to rest on a misunderstanding of what he was actually saying. Fukuyama wasn't saying that events would come to a full stop, that there would be no more war or political turbulence. He was arguing instead that ideological competition was over and that democracy had won. And for 20 years, that looked like a pretty accurate description 
of how the world was going. Uh, friends, comrades, and fellow South Africans, I greet you all in the name of peace, democracy, and freedom for all. In 1990, Nelson Mandela was released from prison in South Africa, which led to the end of apartheid and its replacement by a democratic system. In 1991, the Soviet Union itself collapsed. In 1998, Indonesia, the world's fourth most populous country, also became a democracy after the fall of its strongman ruler, Suharto. Today, however, the strongman style of politics is back in fashion, even in established democracies such as the United States. When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. The authority is total. It's total. It's total. And the governors know that. Since the financial crisis of 2008, there's been what's often called a democratic recession. The number of democracies which have risen steadily since 1989 has begun to fall again. And that brings us to the impact of the coronavirus. This pandemic may have started in China, but it's also been suppressed there faster than in the West. And that's allowed China's one-party state to argue that it's better at mobilizing against a killer disease than Western democracies, which raises again the problem that Fukuyama was writing about back in 1989, the contest between liberal democracy and authoritarian systems. So when I spoke to Francis Fukuyama on the line from California, I asked him if he believed that authoritarian governments are indeed doing better in coping with the coronavirus. I think if you look across the world, there's really no correlation between performance in this crisis and whether you're a democracy or an authoritarian government. In fact, you see a lot of variance on both sides. And so some democracies like South Korea, Germany, look to have done quite well. Others, like the United States, Italy, Spain, have not done so well. And similarly, among authoritarian powers, I wouldn't give China as much credit as they're taking for themselves because I think their system really allowed this virus to get out in the first place. And to this day, it's not clear whether they're being honest about reporting, but they have gotten it under control. Singapore, you know, other authoritarian states have done well, but some have been big disasters like Turkmenistan, where you're not even allowed to use the word COVID or coronavirus. So I think the regime type is not the significant factor that distinguishes how well you're doing. And you, I think, have highlighted something else, which you've actually written books about, which is trust. What do you mean by that? And why is it significant? Well, I think that there has to be a basic degree of social trust between citizens and their governments for a number of obvious reasons. Now, that trust is built on several things. You have to believe your government knows what it's doing. It has the right capacity. It has the doctors, the health professionals, that they're making good judgments, that the first responders are capable. All of these things are a component of trust. But then the more elusive thing is whether you actually think the leaders of your government know what they're doing, that they're actually taking public interest into consideration and not just their short-term political interests. And so if both of those are in place, I think you're going to get a lot of compliance with difficult rules. And if they're not, then you're in big trouble. And do you think that there's a distinction to be made between authoritarian and democratic governments in terms of being able to command trust? Or do you think in the right circumstances, either is capable of doing it? Well, I think that 
either is capable, although I think that in general, the number of authoritarian governments that are strongly trusted by their citizens tends to be pretty low compared to democracies. I mean, that's why we prefer democracy, because it does rest on consent of the governed, and authoritarian countries obviously lack that. But, you know, a place like Singapore, and I would say China to a a great extent, both of those places have citizens who think the government knows what it's doing and are willing to comply with its rules. And you've written there that America currently is suffering from a crisis of trust. Why do you make that diagnosis and why is it significant in this coronavirus context? I think that the United States has been suffering from a big crisis of polarization. This is not something that began with Donald Trump. Uh, It has deep roots that go back 20 years or so. But I think that the country is divided into red states and blue states or red citizens and blue citizens who just see the world differently. They interpret facts and indeed the facts that they believe are different. And so I would say that, you know, for example, our president is highly trusted by his core supporters, maybe the 35, 40% of the country that's really rallied behind him. But on the other hand, the other half of the country completely distrusts almost anything that comes out of his mouth. And I think that that makes a unified political response extremely difficult because it really has politicized all of these decisions that really ought to be made on more objective grounds. But is there any sign, for example, that people are reluctant to obey with lockdown rules because of what Trump said, or the opposite, that they were too lax for too long? Oh, I think there's plenty of evidence of that. For example, in a lot of red states and among conservative commentators, there's been this high degree of skepticism that we're even in a crisis. And to this day, you know, you'll find some of them saying, well, this is no worse than the flu. This is just a conspiracy that uh, has been hatched to weaken Trump and this sort of thing. So in that respect, yeah, I think to a great degree, the larger political polarization has affected the way that people respond to the crisis and whether they're willing to comply with orders. Many red state governors have been very reluctant to enforce quarantine or shutdown orders because of, I think, this politicization. And indeed, I mean, the suspicion of experts, I was just looking at ultra-right commentators saying that Anthony Fauci, who's become the voice of science, if you like, in the US and standing beside the president, but that he should be charged, that he's committed a crime for stirring up undue alarm. Is this a sort of wider crisis of trust, not just in politicians or in the political system, but in the very idea of expertise? I think so. I think that we're in the midst of a global populist uprising in many countries where the existing elites are under suspicion by ordinary people that they don't have everyone's best interests at heart. And I think you're now seeing this come out with regard to all of these public health specialists that have been giving advice on what the appropriate response would be. Now, I should just say, I don't know that actually these health experts are in the best position to make certain difficult trade-offs between you know, the economic consequences of the shutdown and their concern with maximizing public health. That's a political decision that will have to be made by other people. But I think what you're getting is a kind of almost irrational response that anything that comes out of the mouth of one of these experts is ipso facto suspect. Yeah. 
And I mean, you were associated early in your career with the end of history thesis, which was seen as a kind of peon to the triumph of democracy. But then later, you've written about how democracies can decay in your book, Political Order and Political Decay. Do you think the US is a decaying democracy in the terms you've written about? I think that American democracy has been decaying for the past generation. I measure that in a couple of ways. One just has to do with the rigidity of the system. We've got this very complex constitutional system that has worked very well in certain periods, but I think has been a big problem. So, for example, the electoral college by which we choose presidents and the way that states are apportioned representation is highly unequal right now. The Republicans have managed to win majorities in the presidency based on minority votes in the general population. But we can't fix this because this is deeply embedded in a very old constitution. And I think that the other really big issue is the capture of the government by powerful interest groups over the last several decades, where the government really responds to the needs of well-organized lobbies much more than to general citizens. And in both of those respects, this is a crisis of decay that pre-existed Trump by quite a few years. My name's Kurt Jaimungle. And this is the Theories of Everything podcast. The show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness. Exploring grand unified theories, as well as free will and God. Even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo. Heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveke. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you? Type in Theories of Everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms. And what does your study of history and the history of political orders suggest to you? I mean, are countries that fall into this cycle of decay capable of snapping out of it? Well, I think that the short answer is yes. I mean, even in American history, we had an even deeper crisis of polarization prior to the Civil War. It was solved by a very bloody conflict, but it was eventually solved. And there are other periods, like in the late 19th century, where you actually did get out of this kind of a situation. Oftentimes, however, it requires a big external shock. The financial crisis in 2008 wasn't a big enough shock to really right the system. It's possible that this pandemic could be the moment where people will say, yeah, the system is not really working very well. But we don't know that, and we'll just have to wait and see. And do you see this problem of political decay in democracies as a problem that is manifest across a number of democratic countries, or is it just the United States? Well, I think you have to take a broader perspective. So certainly the mainstream political parties throughout Europe have been in a big crisis over the last few years with the rise of populism, because a lot of the center-left and center-right parties seem to be out of touch and challenged by these upstarts. But you know, the question is, is there a better system that would guarantee faster responses to these fundamental challenges? And I'm not sure I see that because one of the big problems in authoritarian countries is that there's no mechanism of accountability by which citizens can throw out a government and replace it with something completely different. And so you're seeing in one authoritarian country after another, essentially dictators who are extending their terms in office. You know, Vladimir Putin is trying to do this in Russia. 
Xi Jinping did this in China and then, you know, across Africa, Middle East, this is a very, very common phenomenon. And so really in that kind of a system, the likelihood that you're going to get a political stasis that goes on for decades, you know, you look at Castro's Cuba or any number of other authoritarian countries, I think that risk is much greater than in a democracy where at least you can vote and you can throw the bums out and get a new crowd in. And yet, I mean, one of the things that strikes me is that there's a sort of blurring in political styles between democracies and some of these authoritarian countries that you mentioned, particularly in the case of Trump, who's quite frank in his admiration for Putin, for Xi Jinping, and who at least rhetorically uses some of the same devices and ways of associating with the public. Well, I think that in many cases, authoritarian leaders are not born authoritarian somehow. I think that you know, they want to stay in power and then they start realizing that it's all the checks and balances in their system that is keeping them from staying in power. And so they begin to attack those checks and balances. And it doesn't happen through a military coup. It happens very gradually. But I think that that's the pattern that is playing itself out in many parts of the world right now. I don't think that Donald Trump gets up in the morning and says, I wish I were Xi Jinping or Sisi of Egypt. Let me see how I can take control all by myself. He thinks to himself, well, there are all of these pesky journalists and courts and bureaucracies that are getting in my way, and let me see how I can weaken them. But I think that's the way today that democracy dies. It's by a thousand small cuts rather than a dramatic gesture. We were talking earlier about populism and nationalism. Where do you see that coming from? I mean, I've seen some of Trump supporters, for example, Steve Bannon, tracing it back to the financial crisis, the mishandling of it, a kind of economic explanation for it. Your most recent book was about identity politics and the rise of that. I mean, how do you strike the balance in trying to understand what's going on? Well, I wouldn't deny the economic drivers of populism. I think that globalization over the past generation has produced tremendous inequalities, and it's really negatively impacted the lives of a lot of working class people. So you want to explain the timing for this upsurge, I think it is a kind of delayed reaction to globalization. But I do think that there's an important identity component. And by identity, I mean the belief that you are a member of a certain kind of community deep down that isn't being respected, and that your political agenda is then built around getting respect for that particular identity. And that explains, I think, a lot of the weird things that are going on in the politics of the United States and other countries where working class voters will vote against their economic self-interest because of this identity affiliation. So, for example, many Trump supporters are completely dependent on Obamacare for health insurance, and yet they vote for Republican politicians that have vowed to abolish Obamacare because of this identity issue. And I think today in the COVID crisis, you're seeing something very similar where people will go to restaurants in a red state because that's a mark of their identity, that they want to show the liberal elites that they are not intimidated by Anthony Fauci and all of these experts. So that's, I think, the way that the current political crisis is playing out. It's driven both by economic concerns, but also by these essentially cultural considerations. And those are to do with, what, the balance of power within the society? Well, and it's based on, I think, these other feelings. You know, a lot of it in many countries has an ethnic or a racial component. 
which is why immigration has been such a big issue for many populists, this feeling that we used to have this nice, tightly bound community, but now we have to take in all of these other people that are either undermining our welfare state or changing our culture in ways that we don't approve of. And so I think that that becomes a further important driver of this phenomenon. Right. And just to wind up then, looking at the, the moment we're in now, this pandemic, it's obviously too early to say, but let's speculate. Do you think this is shaping up to be a major turning point in history, like a Great Depression or indeed the fall of the Berlin Wall or you know, other pandemics in history? We're now all thinking about the Spanish flu of 1918-19, but it's not something that I was brought up to regard as a major turning point. So maybe the pandemic this time won't be. How does it feel to you? I suspect that this is going to be a pretty major turning point. The problem is I think it's very hard to predict exactly what's going to happen. If you think about the financial crisis in 2008, the real effects of it, we didn't see until the rise of Trump and populism around the world. So it was quite a few years until these things played out. And I suspect that this is going to be something similar. I don't anticipate that there'll be a moment where Everybody will announce, okay, the pandemic's over. You're free to go back to your lives as they were before January 2020. I think it's going to be prolonged, and I think it's going to change the way we interact socially. And it's very hard to imagine that that's not going to have very deep and profound impacts on the way that societies operate and on our politics. But it could be for the good because it'll be a wake-up call to change institutions to make us more resilient, or it could be very bad. It'll deepen the kind of xenophobia, nationalism, hostility, conspiracy theories that we've seen in recent years. Well, that's a slightly gloomy note to end on. So let me finish with a slightly (laughs) more optimistic thing, if only anecdotal. I think along with a lot of people, I noticed this photo that emerged in the early stages of the pandemic in Wuhan of a uh, Chinese student convalescing reading your book on uh, political order. And then he was later, I seen released from hospital, I saw him brandishing an autographed copy. How did you hear about that? And how did you get the copy to him? Well, yeah, apparently that photograph of him was very popular on Chinese social media. So a lot of Chinese friends of mine began telling me that he had been reading my book. And one of them, who is a professor in China, said she could get him a personal copy of the English version of the book. So I sent it to her and I signed it and she gave it to him. And he had been apparently a student in an American university previously, and he was extremely happy to get it. So I'm really pleased the way that worked out. Yeah, no, at least nice to have one kind of positive story out of it. So for now, thank you (laughs) very much to Professor Francis Fukuyama in California. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Gideon. That was Gideon Rachman, host of the Rachman Review. Now check out the episode Francis Fukuyama on the Coronavirus and the Crisis of Trust, first aired April 16th, 2020. That'll do it for this week's Foreign Policy Playlist. Darcy Palder and Rob Sachs produced our show. Thanks to the FT for letting us air the episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. If you want to clue me in to another great podcast I might not know about, please do so. I'm all ears. You can email me anytime at podcast at foreignpolicy.com. And for more information about FB Podcasts, check out our website, foreignpolicy.com, or join our Facebook group. I'm Jonathan Tepperman, and I'll see you next time. 
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, tai chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.